We're continuing our series looking at the stranger things of the Bible, and today the series takes us to 2 Kings, the little book of 2 Kings in your Old Testament, chapter 2. If you're using those Bibles in the pew in front of you, it's page 800, or excuse me, 308, 2 Kings chapter 2. I did a lot of intense research for this sermon. I mean, I, I went to all out, getting the research done and looking into things and, and uh, researched literature about this sermon. And, and I went and I, I uh, in preparation, I went digging through the top bedtime stories of all time. Uh, everyone's favorite bedtime stories. On the top of the list of the, the number one bedtime story of all time is Goodnight Moon. You ever read Goodnight Moon to the kids? Did anyone ever have Goodnight Moon read to them when they were little? Goodnight Moon was written in 1947. I had no idea it was that old, but that's the number one bedtime story of all time. In addition to that, there is The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Uh, we know The Very Hungry Caterpillar. I've read that one a few times. My favorite is in the top ten, The Cat in the Hat. I always loved that one, and, uh, and that's in the top ten. The Giving Tree is also there, and Love You Forever is among the top ten. All of those stories are wonderful. All of those stories are sweet tales for children, of, tales of learning and adventure and love, and not a single one of them has anything to do with the story we're going to read today from the Bible. I want to look at 2 Kings chapter 2. Let's just start in verse 23. He, that is Elisha the prophet, he went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Not much of a bedtime story, is it? You know, if your kids ever ask for a bedtime story from the Bible, I, I don't recommend this one. I mean, we love the book Where the Wild Things Are, right? But at the end of Where the Wild Things Are, the wild things don't turn on Max and devour him. That, that doesn't happen in that book. And yet here it is in the Bible. Here it is in God's Word, the, the inspired, God-breathed Word of God that is useful for teaching, reproof, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that we might be complete and fully equipped. What, what does the story have to teach us? What can we possibly learn from a story like this? Well, last week as we looked at Saul and the witch... We saw it was much more than just the story itself. It's the setting around the story. What was happening in their world that led to this? Well, Elijah, Elijah the prophet, has just been replaced by Elisha the prophet. You remember Elijah. Elijah has just been called to heaven. If you remember the story, there is a chariot of fire and there is a whirlwind and Elijah the prophet is taken up to heaven. He's gone and Elisha takes over. That's his successor. Elisha inherits a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. 
He inherits his job. He inherits his position. He even inherits his coat. Isn't that nice that he gets a coat to go along with it? And he inherits God's blessing. Now, you have to realize how important prophets were during this period of Israel's history. I mean, the the, the leadership of Israel and Judah, the, the kings, they were constantly disappointing people. They were constantly worshiping other gods. You never knew whether you were going to get a good king or a bad king. They were leading people astray. There was no consistency, and there was a lot of corruption. The prophets, though, the prophets provided stability. They provided an awareness of God's presence, an awareness of God's leadership, an awareness of God's confrontation when something was wrong. They provided an awareness of God's power. And suddenly... There is a new prophet, Elisha. And he's kind of young, by the way. He's only about 25 years old. There's a new prophet in town. There's a new voice for God. And you may not believe this. This is going to be a little hard for you to believe. But God's people don't always handle change well. Did you know that? My mind was blown also. God's people don't always handle change well. Next month, uh, November 2nd, uh, will be the 30th anniversary of my first sermon at Pleasant Hill Christian Church. Uh, Pleasant Hill called me when I was in college, and they asked me to come preach, and I started preaching out there. I preached for two and a half years until I graduated out of Pleasant Hill, about seven miles out here in the country. It's a wonderful little church. It is a great group of people, and they taught me so much, and they, they put up with so many bad sermons. It was just amazing, but, but they, they called and asked me to come out and preach 30 years ago, this, uh, this November, next month. Now, I preached there for two and a half years. A while after I left Pleasant Hill, somebody left the church some money so that they could finally build bathrooms out there. Prior to that, through the history of Pleasant Hill, all they had ever had were outhouses out back behind the church. That's all they had. They had, I always tell people, they had no, they had no PA system, there was, no, there was no speakers, and there was no bathroom. So I learned to preach loud and fast, because a lot of people had to go to the bathroom. Now, I never knew this for sure. I never really knew if this was for sure, but it was confirmed for me today that when the decision came to build bathrooms at that church, there were some people who were against it. We've never had bathrooms before. We've never needed bathrooms before. Why do you want to go and build bathrooms? We got along just fine all this time without bathrooms. We were doing just fine. It had always been this way. You see, people tend to resist change, especially, it seems, God's people. And so Elijah was caught up into heaven, and Elisha succeeded him. And there must have been those who said, we don't need a new prophet. I like it the way it used to be. I like the way Elijah used to prophesy. I don't like this new guy. He, he talks different, and he uses different stories, and, and he works different miracles. I don't like the way he does it. I know change can be difficult. You know change can be difficult. But change is inevitable. Change is necessary. Whether we're talking about change within a church or whether we're talking about change in our family. 
Maybe change in our outlook, change in our habits, maybe change in our job, maybe even change in our personal life. Change is necessary. And how you react to change is an indicator of how well you trust God. As we look at the story, we see some very wrong reactions to change. Reactions that we might actually see in ourselves. Like the story of Elisha, there are those of us, when change comes along, there are those of us who resist it. There are those who just resist change. Now, I want to back up just a little bit because it's not all about the bears here. There are actually three instances in this incidents in this story of, uh, of following Elisha's succession of, of Elijah. The first incident, the first story, takes place in the company of the prophets. Now, these are prophets. These are men of God, men who are devoted to God, men who hear the voice of God, but they're not happy about this change. Beginning in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him, that is, they saw Elisha, opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said, behold now, there are with your servants 50 strong men. We've got 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and has cast him on some mountain or, or maybe down into some valley. And he, that is Elisha, said, you shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, fine, send. And they sent, therefore, 50 men. And for three days they sought him, but they did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And they said to him, or he said to them, didn't I tell you, do not send? So what's happening here? First of all, you notice they recognize the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. They, they recognize that he has inherited the job. They even bow down to him. They honor him for who he is and, and what his role is. However, they have a big what if. <clears throat> what if when that whirlwind caught Elijah up, what if it didn't take him to heaven? What if instead it dropped him off on a mountain somewhere? What if he's up on a mountaintop somewhere and he's just sitting there by himself or or what if god forbid what if it threw him down in a valley and he's hurt and he's injured and he's down there in the valley with all the swamps and the snakes and all that we need to send these 50 strong men we got 50 strong guys let's send them to go find him just to make sure he's okay and elisha tells them this is a waste of time this is a waste of time and this is a waste of energy you look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, But they urged him until he was ashamed, and he said, Send. The NIV translates it this way. They, they pestered him until he was too ashamed to refuse. Have you ever been pestered by someone until you finally just gave in and said, Fine, do whatever you want. You ever done that? You ever do that to your kids? I'm not going to raise any hands, but you ever, you ever do that to your spouse? Or does your spouse ever do that to you? Maybe. Does it surprise you to find that God does that to us as well? 
fine, just do whatever you want. And they resisted the change. There was something so tempting, even though they knew they needed to move on, there was something so tempting about, we like the way it used to be. And in part, we have to realize, in part, that they missed Elijah. Elijah was their friend. Elijah was their, their leader. They loved Elijah, and they, they hadn't had time to say goodbye yet. We get that. Change is hard, and sometimes we're very slow to make those necessary changes. We see that in church. It's obvious. We, we see that in churches. But it's also just part of our makeup. We also see it in our personal lives. We have habits that we know we need to change. Our doctor tells us we need to change these habits. People who love us tell us we need to change these habits. We need to adjust our attitudes, and we are slow. We dig our heels in. We are very slow to make those changes. We're slow to make changes in habits. We're slow to make changes in relationships. We're just slow about the reality of of aging and the reality that times change, and it's hard for us to admit. It's time to let go of the past. It's time to allow change to come. You know what's ironic? Let me tell you what's ironic. Thousands of years later, today, today, the Jews still wait for Elijah to show up. They're still waiting. They're still waiting for Elijah to show up every year on Passover. Every year on Passover, every Jewish family has a Passover Seder, a Passover meal, and they leave the door open at the house, or they leave it unlocked. The door is ajar, the door is there. They set a place at the table for Elijah just in case he shows up. A table, a chair is left empty just in case Elijah... They even pour a cup of wine for Elijah just in case Elijah comes back. Now the question is, do they really anticipate Elijah coming back? Or has that just become tradition? See, that's the danger. When we resist change long enough, it's no longer about following God it's about tradition. It's about, well, we've, we've always done it this way. And we can say that at church. We've always done it this way. We can also say that in our families. We've always handled problems this way. We've always fought like this. We've always reacted like this. And we stop even anticipating the possibility of change. And when we stop anticipating the possibility of change, we stop growing. There are those who resist change. As the story continues, there's, there, there are other places. We, that's a difficult place to find ourselves. But as the story continues, we see another response that we might have, and that is that we might rationalize our present circumstances. We might rationalize the way things are now and think we don't really need to change. So verse 15, Elisha is going to Jericho. Do you remember the story of Jericho? Do you remember Jericho? Uh, first city they conquer when they come into the promised land. They march around the outside of Jericho how many times? Or they march for seven days, and then on the seventh day they march seven times. At the end of the seventh time, they blow the trumpets, and the walls come tumbling down. You're familiar with the story of Jericho. Way back in the book of Joshua where that happens, in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26, it says, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time. And the oath, Joshua said, cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and tries to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son, 
he shall set up its gates. Guess what? The city of Jericho had just been rebuilt at great expense, at great trouble, a lot of effort, but Jericho had just been rebuilt, and it was beautiful, but it was still cursed. Verse 19 continues the story. The men of the city, the men of Jericho, said to Elisha, behold, the situation of this city, it is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. And so he, Elisha, said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him, and he went to the spring of water, and he threw the salt in, and he said, thus says the Lord, I have healed the water, and from now on neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. And so the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Now I want you to read this very carefully. They say, this is a pleasant place. This is a nice place. But the water's bad. And nothing grows. The land is is unfruitful. But it's still a, a pleasant place. And you and I have to stop and ask ourselves, what's so pleasant? What's so pleasant about a place where the water is so bad that people who drink it die, and where the land is so bad that farmers can't grow anything on it? What's so pleasant about that place? I have a suspicion, and I may be completely wrong, but I have a suspicion. Look at verse 21, when Elisha heals the water. Verse 21, he says, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. I wonder if it was a pleasant place because it was quiet. Neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. Was it a pleasant place because there weren't any children? There weren't any messes? No one was there to mess up Jericho, track mud in and out? Was it a pleasant place because no one was there making any noise? Let me tell you something about Kansas Christian Church. Kansas Christian Church loves babies. (laughs) We love the sound of babies. We love the sound of children. Don't ever, don't ever worry about a crying baby here. I mean, don't make it worse. Don't pinch them and stuff, but Don't ever worry about the sound of a crying baby here because a crying baby, that's hope. That's that's life. That's a future. And that means means a future for our church. That means a future for our community. Make noise. You know, go ahead, let them make noise. None of them are going to be louder than my kid. You know, that's it. None of them can be louder than my kid. It's a horrible thing when a church has no children. It's a horrible thing when there's no messes on the carpet. It is a horrible thing when there's no fingerprints on a newly painted wall. It is an awful, awful thing. We need those noises. We need those messes because it means there is life. There is a future. But you see, we rationalize our problems. And we say, it's not that bad. It's actually pleasant. It's, it's nice and quiet here. It's peaceful. I mean, you can sleep right through the sermon. No kid's going to wake you up. Most of, you remember, most of you remember the old building. Someone was in here this week visiting, and they saw the pictures in the, uh, in the cabinets out there, and they said, wow, it was a beautiful building. You know what? It was a, it was a gorgeous building. We, we know it was, a, it was a beautiful building. There's no denying that. 
But do you remember that a year before the fire, the north wall of the building had started pulling apart? Dave remembers. The north wall had started pulling apart. There were three courses of bricks at the top and five at the bottom. And in the middle, I got up there and looked, and in the middle, those bricks were starting to crumble and fall apart, and we had to have it patched up. Now, the estimate was given to us at that time. The estimate of fixing just the north wall was $300,000, and that's pretty conservative. Just to fix it back to the way it was 100 years earlier, and you know what? We would have done it. We would have done it. We would have taken care of that. We would have rationalized it. We would have said this is still pleasant, still a nice place. If God hadn't moved us here, if God had not acted. It's so easy to rationalize. And again, not just in a church, but in our own lives, in our own homes. People rationalize abuse. And they rationalize addiction. I've had people say to me, I know he drinks too much, but at least when he's drunk, he's home, and I know where he is, and they rationalize that. You know, there's that old saying, the devil we know is better than the devil we don't know. That's no way to live. That's no way to continue. Our rationalization doesn't produce life or peace. It just keeps things quiet. This is a pleasant place, they said. You know what? Fairview Cemetery is a pleasant place. I don't want to live there. I don't want to go to church there. There's no future in a cemetery. How we react to change is an indicator of how well we trust God. There are those who resist. There are those who rationalize our present circumstances. It's not that bad. And then there are those who out and out simply reject what God is doing. Okay, so we make our way back to the story about the bears. What do we do with this story? What do you do with this story where you know, two bears? I always wanted to, two bears come out of the woods and, and they, they maul 42 children. What do we do? I always wanted to title this sermon, Bears Win by 42. But I thought that was a little inappropriate. I've always thought it would make a great sermon title, Bears Win by 42. What do we do with this story? Well, first of all, Bethel. They are coming out of the city of Bethel. Bethel was evil. They had set up an idol in Bethel. The king had set up an idol in Bethel, and he said, that's your God now. Make your sacrifices to that idol. You worship that idol. You, uh, we're going to have festivals to that idol. They set up this giant golden calf. That's who we're going to worship now. Bethel was the focal point of Israel's rebellion against God. Now, the other thing that you have to realize is when it says small boys, that is a very unfortunate translation. And I have no idea why they decided to translate it small boys or little children or however it appears in your Bible. The word that's used there would better be translated young men. It, it, it reflects those, it, it applies to those who are anywhere from 12 years of age. That means they've been through bar mitzvah, right? If you know Jewish culture. From 12 years of age to 30 years of age. 30 is when you were finally considered a man. That's why Jesus' ministry doesn't begin until he is about 30 years old, right? So anywhere from 12 to 30. And keep in mind, 
Elisha himself is 25 when this takes place. He's only 25 when this story happens. So anywhere from 12 to 30 years old. The other thing we have to keep in mind is this. All it tells us is that the bears mauled 42 of them. It doesn't tell us how many there were total. There may have been 43. There may have been 50. There may have been 100. There may have been 200. We don't know how many there were to start with. All we can say is Elisha felt threatened, and he responded with a curse. I want to read the story again. It's one of my favorite Old Testament stories. Just so weird. He went up from there to Bethel, very vile, evil place. And while he was going up on his way, some young men came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! I was really hoping Fred could be here for this sermon. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Go up, you bald head! Go up where? What do they mean, go up, you bald head? Well, they knew about Elijah, and what had happened to Elijah? He had been got caught up in the whirlwind, right? They knew about that. They knew what had happened to Elijah. They knew about the chariot of fire and the whirlwind. But unlike the prophets, they accepted it. Elijah's gone. And they were just fine with that because Elijah, no more Elijah meant no more meddling in our sin, no more meddling in our ways and confronting us for this idol that we've got. No more trouble. Elijah is gone. And then Elisha shows up and he's just as bad, if not worse. He's got a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And so they respond and they say, you go on up too. You, you go on up and get lost. One translation I read said, drop dead, Baldy. And I thought that was a great translation. Just drop dead, Baldy. It's an interesting insult. Baldness. It's interesting because Elisha is only 25. Is he actually bald or is it just an insult? It could have just been an insult. But in that region, baldness is rare. In fact, a, a full head of hair of thick and luxurious hair is considered a, a sign of God's blessing. It's a sign of virility. You remember Absalom and how Absalom once a year would cut his hair and he would weigh it out and it would weigh so much? A, a full head of hair is considered a blessing. And so they find a weakness in Elisha. They can't attack God, so they attack God's man. And when they can't attack his character because he's a good man, they find a flaw. They find something they can attack. They find a, a defect and they attack him personally. We shouldn't be surprised when people attack us, whether as a church or as individuals. When people see the things that we're doing and when they see the effect that we're having on our community on our world, those attacks can get very personal, and we just have to keep reminding ourselves they're not attacking us, they're attacking God. I've always wondered why it specifies she-bears in the story also. I've always wondered about that. Why does it specify female bears? I, I can't be sure. 
But I do know this, when a, when a female bear senses that her cub is threatened, <laughs> mama bears out there, you getting mama bears? <laughs> when that cub is threatened, she is dangerous and nothing will stop her. Um, I, I've been hiking in bear country before. I've never seen a bear, and that's because I, I make too much noise. Uh, <laughs> I've never seen a squirrel, for that matter. I, you know, I make too much noise out there. But I, I've hiked with friends who, who are experienced in bear country. And, and uh, the first time we hiked, I thought it was silly that they had all these little bells on them. <clears throat> they had bells hanging off their backpacks. I thought that was kind of funny. And it turns out those are bear bells. And uh, you, if the bear makes noise and they, they hear you coming, the bear will run off. And, and uh, they tell you, wear those bear, wear bear, bear bells and, and make lots of noise. And they also tell you to carry pepper spray with you, you know, and, and if, a, if a mother bear is feeling like her cubs are threatened, you can empty that pepper spray right in her face, and it's not going to make a difference. She's still going to be coming for you. Um, the other thing they tell you in bear country is pay attention to the droppings um, that you see, because bear, bear, different bears have different kinds of droppings. Like there's brown bears, and brown bears aren't that, aren't that bad. You know, black bears, black, they're, they're, they're kind of like big dogs, and, and you'll see their droppings, and the, the droppings are small, and they've got, you know, twigs and berries and things in them, and it's no big deal. And, but then if you come across a grizzly bear, uh, the droppings are bigger, and inside the droppings you'll find uh, little bells, and uh, <laughs> they, they smell like pepper spray. Uh, so keep an eye if you're around in the woods and, and you see that. There's nothing more dangerous than a mama bear. Mama bears defend new life. And there was new infancy of faith in the lives of the people of God. Their faith was under attack. They were being ridiculed. They were being jeered. And in a very real and powerful and horrifying way, God reminds us we do not attack what He is doing. We do not attack the changes He's bringing about. Years later, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. And I want you to hear that like that. It's not God shouldn't be mocked. It's God, not God, God won't be mocked. God is not mocked. In the end, when accounts are settled, God is not mocked. When you think about Elisha, Think about Elisha's response. You can't help but think of the parallels with Jesus. They jeer him. They ridicule him. And they say, go on up, you bald head. Go on up to heaven just like that last guy. Matthew 25, verses 41 and 42, says the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him while he was on the cross saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe. Go on up, you bald head. Come on down, you king of Israel. Remember the song we used to sing? He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. And ever since I was a kid, I've loved the story of Elisha and the bears. I've, I've just always thought that was a great story. 
My hero is not Elisha. My example is not Elisha. My example is Jesus. And there are times I really wouldn't mind being able to call she-bears out of the woods. Take care of a few people. (laughs) Take care of a few problems. Take care of a few people jeering and making noise. But Elisha is not my example. Jesus is. And when Jesus was jeered, He offered grace. And so we offer grace. And we offer grace in part because we trust Jesus and we let Him sit on that stool where all the decisions get made. And through the changes in our lives, through the changes in our church, through the changes in our families, we trust Jesus. Through those difficult times when we drag our feet and we, we, we just want to turn around and say, we like it the way it used to be. We put blinders on and say, things are fine. We don't need to change. Every, this is a pleasant place. We put our trust in Him because He loves us. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we fully admit that we've not always welcomed change. There have been times when we dug in tooth and nail and we stood opposed to the work that You were doing in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in our world. And we confess that in those times, of our trust in You was, was not what it should be. And so today, we pledge ourselves to You anew, pledging our trust, clinging to, your, clinging to You, and clinging to Your grace. Father, there will be times when we will be ridiculed for our trust in You, when others will see it as foolishness, and we pray for grace in the way we respond. Grace not to curse, but to bless. Grace to show them that it is Jesus we look to as our example and our Savior, and through the way that we welcome change and respond to criticism, we want them to know Jesus as well. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.